Amen. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this great day. We appreciate the kindness of your mercy. And we are appreciative of what we just sang about, that for sinners who put faith in Jesus Christ, we are free, free forever. Amen. Lord, we thank you for that. We rejoice in that truth. We pray, Lord, now as we look to your word together that you would enlighten our minds so that we could know you better, so that we could serve you better and honor you with our lives and glorify you. We confess, Lord, that we fall short of your glory. We sin. We need to repent constantly. And we do so, Lord, knowing the truth of your word that says, if we would confess our sins, you are faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so we do that, Lord. We confess we are not right before you. We need to confess our sins. We need to turn from them, Lord. We do so knowing this grace is true, that your testimony of your word will come true. So, Lord, help us now to understand you even better as we look to your word. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Last week, we took a short diversion from the uh, study in Luke that we'd been doing, and, and it was a study on communion, since it was Communion Sunday. Um, I hope that was helpful to you. If you weren't here um, and you have just want a little more full understanding of communion, um, I did a whole sermon on communion, and so you can go back to the website and, and see what that's all about if you like. Um, this morning, we're going to be looking at a story of Jesus' baptism by John the Baptist. And in our passage, in Luke chapter 3, it's only two verses. And just to give you an idea, there's so much in these two verses that uh, when John MacArthur preached through these two verses, it was two one-hour sermons. Um, and I believe you could actually write an entire book just on these two verses um, but we're going to try to get through uh, some of the main important things this morning, and uh, hopefully we can come away with a great appreciation for the beginning of Jesus' ministry, uh, which kind of began during, uh, at the time when he was baptism, baptized. So, so the big idea for this morning's message is that Jesus set an example of humility even during an event that showed his div divinity. Jesus set an example of humility even during an event that showed his divinity. So how, how can you be divine and humble at the same time? Only Jesus can do that. So we're going to read from Luke chapter 3, and we're going to go back to verse 15 just to kind of refresh you since it was a couple weeks ago that we went through that, and then we'll get into uh, this morning's main two verses we're going to look at are verses 21 and 22. So starting at verse 15, it says, As the people were in expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ, John answered them all, saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. But Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them all, that he locked up John in prison. Now, when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, 
the heavens were opened and the Holy Spirit ascended, descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. So Luke actually has the shortest version of this, of the four Gospels, which all four Gospels do record um, at least something about the baptism of Jesus. And because it's important, I think, to see the, the full story here, and we remember that different Gospel writers maybe had a different thing they were focusing on, uh, just like if, you, if we all told a story of something we uh, saw that we would have different takes on what happened um, or different focuses. So the gospel writers do as well. So I want to quickly go through uh, the other three gospels and show what they teach about the baptism of Jesus. Um, and so we'll begin with Matthew. And in Matthew, it's in chapter 3, starting at verse 13. And through verse 17, Matthew writes, Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. So compared to Luke, Matthew's account adds more information, as you can see. And some of that information was that John was perplexed by Jesus coming to be baptized. So I want to go through some of the reasons why John might have tried to put a pause on it, in a sense, and said, well, hold on, Jesus. I think you need to baptize me. Well, one of the reasons is we can remember as we went through uh, Luke chapter 3 earlier, earlier in the chapter that John's baptism was a baptism of repentance, you remember. So the people were coming and this baptism represented a turning from sin, a confessing of sin. And uh, so they would come out to John and they would repent and be baptized and so Jesus now comes out, and we know about Jesus, he never sinned, so why would he need a baptism of repentance? John recognizes this, and this is actually one thing in Matthew's gospel that maybe is more significant than we often give it because we read it through sometimes, but one of the things that we can imply out of John being confused by Jesus coming to him to be baptized is that John must have known that Jesus had no reason to repent and nothing to repent of. So John is a little bit confused of this. On the other hand, John recognized that he is a sinful person and that he actually needs to be baptized, but he didn't have anyone probably to baptize him. So he suggests, well, why don't you baptize me? It's, it would make more sense in, us, in his mind. So we also have to remember that even though Jesus had no sin, that he was later going to take on all of the sin of mankind. So for now, Jesus is identifying with those he came to save, and he's also showing that he has humility. So Matthew does not mention, as Luke did, that Jesus was in prayer during this. Um, 
and we will talk about that a little bit more in a moment, but Jesus was always in complete union with the Father and the Spirit, um, but Matthew doesn't record the part about him praying. Matthew records, this is my beloved son, where Luke says, you are my beloved son. And at first glance, some people might say, aha, there's a a problem of conflict in Scripture. One account says something different than the other. This is not a conflict. um, And the reason are that gospel records are not always intended to convey exact language of the narratives. But as I said earlier, the, the different gospel writers had different Uh, focuses in different areas. Um, But both accounts do show that Jesus was affirmed or endorsed by a real heavenly voice. And this would have been a very amazing and significant thing to anyone who witnessed that. I want to read Mark now, uh, verses 9 through 11, very similar to Matthew, although slightly briefer. But he said, In those days Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee, and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. Mark notes that not only the heavens were opened, they were torn open. This indicates a little more than just, you know, the clouds parted a little bit. He uses a a graphic language there. The heavens are torn open. But other than that, there's not a lot of difference between Mark and Matthew. Let's move on to John for a moment. John writes this um, in John 1, chapter, uh, chapter 1, verse 32 through 34. John bore witness. Now, this is the gospel written by John. He's not writing about himself. He's writing about John the Baptist, so keep that in mind. John bore witness, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, he on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. So John, the gospel writer, focuses on John the Baptist and his clear testimony that he was not the Christ. Luke also wrote about that a little bit. So John does want to reveal uh, that God had told him, John the Baptist, had told, God had told him that he would see uh, a sign that would indicate to him that he was seeing the real Christ. He would see the Spirit descend and remain on him. So let's get back into Luke now, and we are gonna we have a lot to go through here. So we'll try to I'll try to be as brief as possible with each point. But there's a lot to be said here, as I mentioned. So the first thing I want to mention is that Jesus was the last to be baptized, and even then, after John objected, as we saw in Matthew. All the people were baptized, then Jesus was baptized. You know, it reminds us of Jesus saying, the last shall be first and the first shall be last. Jesus here is demonstrating humility. He he came not to be served, but to serve, remember. And so Jesus is coming after all the other people are done being baptized. He comes to be baptized. 
Another thing that is happening here that Luke alone writes about among the four gospel accounts of the baptism of Jesus, that Jesus was praying. So Jesus was praying. Now, if you ever want to have a model person for prayer, Jesus is the model for prayer. Uh, You can see that throughout the gospels, that it was his constant habit to get up early, to go pray, uh, to go off alone to be with the with the the father and prayer and so we see that he had this constant prayer life now if anyone we could you know people have said well if anyone could not have maybe had to pray it would have been jesus which isn't really true but if you think of it he's he's god why would he need to spend all this time in prayer but he was god and he was human and he was doing this as an example for all of us so Jesus prayed, so we should pray. Um, and that's a whole other sermon all by itself, but I just wanted to mention Jesus here is praying even as he's being baptized. The heavens opened. Mark 1.10, I just read it a moment ago. He said the heavens were torn open, and the Spirit then descended on him like a dove. So Mark uses the word torn, and as I said, this is kind of like dramatic language, more dramatic than just, like I said, the clouds didn't just part. The heavens tore, were torn open. And other than that, we don't have an indication of what that necessarily looked like uh, as the people saw it, but it was significant enough that the gospel writers all said something about the heavens parting, and Mark uses the word torn. So in Scripture, the heavens opening... Uh, is a great and significant sign. And it's usually an indication that God is communing with people or communicating with people in some way. In Ezekiel, for example, in in the first verse of Ezekiel chapter 1, in the 30th year, in the fourth month, on the fifth day of the month, as I was among the exiles by the Chebar Channel, the heavens were opened. And I saw visions of God. So this is how Ezekiel starts uh, the very first verse of of his writings. Stephen, when he was being stoned to death for being a witness of Jesus Christ, he said he saw the heavens opening and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Jesus said to Nathanael, after Nathaniel said, oh, you, you knew that before you saw me, you knew I was standing by the fig tree. He says, you're going to see better things than that. You're going to see the heavens open, and you're going to see angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Peter likewise saw the heavens open when he saw the vision of the sheets with food on them. And of course, who saw the angels ascending and descending? Uh, As Jesus said to Nathanael, you will see this happening. But we also know Jacob saw this. He dreamed of a ladder. Remember Jacob's ladder? Not the thing in the science class. But Jacob's ladder where he saw the angels. We'll read about it here in Genesis chapter 28. Starting at verse 12, Jacob dreamed and behold... There was a ladder set up on the earth, and the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, 
I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and to your offspring. This was such a significant thing to Jacob that he made an altar there. Um, Like, this is the place where I saw this vision of the, the angels ascending and descending. And finally, we see in Scripture, towards the very end of Scripture, that the heavens are going to open again. In Revelation 19, starting at verse 11, it says, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and the one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. So we see from the Old Testament all the way back to Genesis, and we see all the way to Revelation, these examples of heaven opening. And it's always a very significant thing. And it will be significant when the heavens once more are opened, unfolded like a scroll. So that's a very important point that we sometimes can move past quickly as we're reading these verses. But the heavens opening is a great and significant point. The next thing I want to talk about for a moment is this idea of the dove, the Holy Spirit um, coming down like a dove. And doves can have some symbolism. They, they can symbolize purity, uh, innocence, peace. Um, but we have to be careful here. Um, it's very common in Christianity in our world today. You see um, a, an actual physical painting or picture of a dove, and that's to represent the Holy Spirit, right? Well, we should not believe that the Holy Spirit is a bird. Um, He didn't look like a dove. He descended like a dove. Many Christians use that image to represent the Holy Spirit, but the Holy Spirit is not a bird, okay? Uh, I heard someone say that a kid remembered the Sunday school lesson wrong and said he came down like a duck. But (laughs) it's... uh, it's it's not a duck either. It's not the Holy Spirit doesn't is not a bird. So the language here has to do with how the Holy Spirit descended. It's not about a visual look. And so we don't know exactly what was seen there. Another example of this where where often we see uh, some of you older people remember the flannel graphs from Sunday school, you know, and the Holy Spirit descending on the day of Pentecost. And all these people had this little flame on top of their head. And, uh, and yet scripture says it was like a, f- a flame of fire. We don't know what it actually looked like. It wasn't an actual flame of fire. In the same case here, it's not an actual dove that landed on Jesus' head, or on his shoulder or something like that. Um, it, it was more of the sense that, that it came down and lighted on him as though a bird were landing, like the same type of motion. So it's a motion thing, not a visual thing. So uh, we don't know, again, what that exactly looked like. Another question that comes up, and it actually became a heresy, that there were people that said, well, Jesus uh, was filled with the Holy Spirit for the first time uh, at his baptism when, when the Holy Spirit descended like a dove. And, and there was one heresy even that said before that he was he wasn't sinless, and he was only sinless after that, which is just tears apart all of the gospel, so we can't go with that for sure. Um, So did Jesus receive the Spirit here for the first time? Absolutely not, 
okay? Jesus always had the Spirit in full measure. He had lived sinlessly. No one without the Spirit could be so guided and empowered as Jesus was. Uh, He had the full measure of the Spirit from the moment he was conceived by the Spirit. So what happened here? Well, he was being commissioned or recognized in a way for the people to see. Um, This account is a powerful display of God's favor and recognition of Jesus as his true son and as the true Christ. So this was his public anointing. Um, Or today we, you know, if someone is ordained into ministry, there's sometimes a public ordination ceremony or something like that. Um, But this was the public anointing of Jesus that God provided for people some sort of visible ability to see that something significant is happening here and uh, that Jesus himself is someone to pay attention to. Not only that, but the voice of God, which we'll get to in a bit. So there are a few scriptures that kind of can be associated with this. The first is Isaiah 61, verse 1. And Jesus will quote this in chapter 4 when we get there of Luke. But Isaiah 61, 1 says, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. And of course, Jesus quoted that, Luke 4, 18, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. In other words, Jesus You remember he went to the temple, he read this portion of Isaiah, and then he said, today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. And so this is the anointing of Jesus, the public acknowledgement that God the Father is giving to show people that are willing to believe um, that this is Jesus, this is my son, this is the Christ. In Acts 10, 38, we see that God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And then in Isaiah 42, 1, in a messianic prophecy um, that Isaiah wrote, Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. So God's spirit was on Jesus before, but now it was more in a way where the public would see and be, be able to acknowledge that, those who were willing to believe. All right, the next thing we have is a voice from heaven. And throughout Scripture, a voice from heaven is kind of this um, apocalyptic theme and something that happens in uh, apocalyptic literature, which is end times, you know, the end of times literature. Um, so I'll give you some examples from Revelation. The first one is from Revelation 4.1. It says, After this I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. Now, this one says there's a door standing open in heaven, so it's a little bit linked to the other uh, about the heavens Um, being torn open as well. There's an opening into heaven and a voice coming down. Revelation 10, 4, 
When the seven thunders had sounded, I was about to write, and I heard a voice from heaven saying, seal up what the seven thunders have said, and do not write it down. And then in Revelation 10, 8, just a few verses later, it says, Then the voice that I had heard from heaven spoke to me again, saying, Go, take the scroll that is open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. In Revelation eleven twelve, they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. And they went up in a he- in, to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies watched them. That's referring to the two witnesses. Revelation 14, 13, And I heard a voice from heaven saying, Write this. Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors and for their deeds follow them. You see the significance of a voice from heaven? Isaiah 6, 4, The foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. Isaiah 6, 8, I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am, send me. And by the way, when we look at Isaiah in chapter 6 there, what happened when he, when he realized he was in the presence of God? What was me, right? I've been in the presence of God. I heard his voice audibly, and I'm still alive. It's, it was an amazing thing even to Isaiah. And then Ezekiel 1.25, there came a voice from, the, uh, from above the expanse over their heads. Um, so this theme of a voice, audible voice from heaven, uh, is, is a, a common theme through Scripture, but it's always of some great impact. Um, when God speaks audibly, it's a big deal. And he spoke audibly at the baptism of Jesus so that many people that were witnesses there could hear it. All right, now the next thing I want to move forward to is the term, the, the beloved son, um, that that. God referred to Jesus as, my, you are my beloved son, or this is my beloved son. Um, some have likened this language to that was used of Isaac. Isaac uh, was Abraham's only son, just as Jesus was God's only son. And what did God ask Abraham to do with Isaac? Genesis 22, 2. He said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So God tested Abraham by asking him to offer his only son as a sacrifice, knowing he would stop him before he did it. But God himself did give his own son as a sacrifice. And Abraham found a ram in the thicket to take his son's place. There was no ram in the thicket to take Jesus' place. This theme of um, the only son as well, Jesus told a parable about a landowner who sent servants to receive payment from his tenants, and they killed three servants. And then the owner of the vineyard sent his son, Luke 20, 13, the owner of the vineyard said, what shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. What happened, of course, they threw out the son. They killed him. And this was sort of a prophetic parable. God had sent prophets and judges and kings. The people had not listened. Now he sent his son Jesus, and still many did not listen, and instead they wanted to kill him. I want to now talk for a moment, and we're getting towards the end here, 
um, of the message that about the presence of the Trinity at the baptism of Jesus. Um, because when we talk about the Trinity, of course, people who object to it or whatever, they'll say, well, the word Trinity is never in Scripture. Um, and that's true, that the word Trinity is not in Scripture. It's a word that we use to describe what Scripture teaches. And so we're going to talk about that. Um, so in this account, we see that all three members of the Trinity are mentioned as having a significance at the baptism of Jesus. The Son himself, Jesus, was baptized. The Spirit descended visibly for people to see, and the Father spoke audibly for people to see. So um, there are many different um, creeds that, that are out there that can help you to understand uh, what the Trinity is. I just chose the Westminster Confession because uh, I had it handy when I was putting this down. So, uh, But it helps us to understand a little bit uh, what is the Trinity. So here's what the Westminster Confession says. In the unity of the Godhead, there, are, there be three persons of one substance, power, and eternity. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Ghost. The Father is of none, neither begotten nor proceeding, the Son is eternally begotten of the Father, the Holy Ghost eternally proceeding from the Father and the Son. Well, that's easy to understand, right? <laughs> Not so easy. Um, there, there are a lot of wrong ways of trying to explain the Trinity. Um, and one of them that sometimes people use is a, it's actually a heresy that was referred to at the... That we mostly refer to it as modalism, but it, it means that, well, God appeared sometimes as Jesus, sometimes he was appearing as the Holy Spirit, sometimes he appears as God the Father, but it's always just one God, there's no three persons in the Trinity. Well, how do you explain then the baptism of Jesus if that were true? And uh, so we see here that clearly there are three persons of the Godhead active um, at the at the baptism of Jesus. Modalism is one that sometimes you'll hear someone say something like, well, you know, you see, the Trinity is like water. You know, you got your, your ice cubes sometimes, and you got, sometimes it's steam, and sometimes it's liquid water. Or they'll say, um, you know, something similar to that, you know, like, well, it's like a man who, he's a, he's a father, and he's a husband, and he's a son. Or they'll say, it's like the sun, which you know, has its heat and its light, and then the sun itself. And there's all these different ways of basically trying to explain the Trinity that people probably well-meaningly often, often try to use as illustrations, but they're, um, they're wrong. Uh, it's, it's modalism. Um, another one that people use is partialism. The famous one for that is St. Patrick, who used the three-leaf clover, who said, oh, there's three different leaves there but it's all one, but then they're each different parts, they're not the same at the same time, and it gets very confusing. And uh, So we gotta be careful with those illustrations. Um, but the uh, Westminster Confession there helps us a bit to say there's three persons of one substance, power, and eternity. They're all eternal, they all have the same power, and they all are the same substance, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Ghost. 
And the father uh, is of none, meaning that he is not um, created. Uh, he is neither begotten nor proceeding. The Son is eternally begotten of the Father, the Holy Ghost eternally proceeding from the Father and the Son. In other words, even though they're all three eternal, all three co-eternal in power and in majesty and all of that, there is a role that each have taken, and willingly so. And we see the Son willingly submit. And you can read about that too in Philippians chapter 2, which is a great passage telling about how Jesus humbled himself. All right, so... We went through an awful lot here in this passage. I want to recap a little bit, and then we'll wrap up. Uh, First of all, we want to remember that Jesus was humble and waited to be baptized after all the people had come before him. He put himself last and uh, even to the cross humbled himself. Uh, The next point I made was that His baptism, that remember John was surprised, like why are you coming to be baptized? It was to show his complete obedience to everything. He submitted completely to everything that God had required. Um, And then we see also the prayer. We don't want to miss that part. If, If you've read about the baptism of Jesus and the other three Gospels, they don't mention this. Luke is the only one, but I think it's significant to remember that Jesus was in constant prayer. The heavens were opened. They were torn open. And the good news is they'll be, well, the good news for believers is they'll be opened again. It's not good news for people who hate God. But the heavens will be opened again. Next point I want you to remember, the Holy Spirit is not a bird. (laughs) Not a duck or a dove. The Holy Spirit's not a bird. Also, that the Holy Spirit was already with Jesus. He wasn't lacking in any way his fullness of the Holy Spirit or anything like that. He had the fullness of the Holy Spirit. Uh, This was an anointing to show the people who Jesus was. The voice of God is further evidence of the truth of the gospel of Jesus. Um, And he was a son. He was approved of. Um, when, when God said, this is my son, or you are my son, in whom I'm well pleased, it was a, an acknowledgement that he had already lived up to this point a sinless life. But it wasn't even that God was pleased just for that. God was pleased with his son because they were coexistent and co-eternal in the Trinity in a perfect union relationship. And so he was already pleased. Um, and he's well pleased now as well because he's an obedient son. So the good news for us is we can also experience relationship with God the Father, God the Holy Spirit, and God the Son. God the Father directs and elects those who are saved. The Son is our propitiation and expiation. You remember those big words we've discussed a few times, and, and I'll remind you what one of my favorite preachers Alistair Begg often said, we're Christians now, we're going to learn some big words. Propitiation, meaning Jesus turned away God's wrath for us. Uh, The example that's probably one of the good examples is when Jacob is going back to see Esau. After many years and the last time they were together, he ripped him off out of his inheritance. And he was going back afraid. What are going to be the consequences now? And so he sent a convoy ahead. 
you remember that story? Sends a whole bunch of gifts and animals and, and different stuff. And each time uh, Esau comes to the next little part of the convoy, he's like, what's going on here? It's, and the, the servant would say, my servant Jacob has sent the, the gift and blah, blah, blah. And the whole idea of that is that's what propitiation is. So that by the time Esau and Jacob meet, they have this beautiful reunion. Whether Esau would have had a softened heart by then or not, I don't know. The scripture doesn't say that. But certainly by sending all those gifts ahead, it probably didn't hurt. So propitiation, God's wrath turned away from us. And expiation, our sin taken away from us. Um, That's more like the scapegoat in the Old Testament that they would place the sins, they would put their hands on the goat and figuratively placing their sins on the goat and sending it away. So God the Father directs and elects those who are saved. The Son is our propitiation and our expiation. And the same Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead lives in us. Romans 8, 9 to 11, You, however, are not in the flesh but in the Spirit, if, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Well, that's good news indeed. Never forget that. Our salvation is given to us by each of the members of the Trinity. God the Father, he planned, directed, and elected those who would be saved. The Son is our propitiation and our expiation. He's our substitute. He's he's our salvation. And Jesus was raised from dead by that same spirit that empowered him early in life, and that same spirit lives in us. So all of that being said, now what do we do with it? We're going to go out these doors in a few moments, and what are we going to do with this? First thing we have to do is believe. We have to repent and believe. If you want to have the salvation that Jesus offers, it's that simple. Repent of your sins. That means turn away and turn towards God, turn towards righteousness, and then believe. And when that happens, like I said about the the propitiation, you turn the wrath of God away, the expiation, he takes your sin away. But even further than that, his righteousness becomes our righteousness. And that's really good news. It's a pretty good exchange for us. Christ takes our sin, we get his righteousness. But we have to repent and believe. And we must be baptized. Now, baptism is not saving it doesn't save you it's an act of obedience once you have been saved and because the bible tells us that if we confess with our mouth that jesus christ is lord we have to profess christ as our savior and lord and baptism public baptism is part of that so it's someone saying you know what i'm committing to jesus he's my savior my lord i'm laying down my old self and my sins and i'm coming up out of the water as uh, a new creature in in Christ Jesus. So we must believe, and then once we've believed, we've repented and 
believed, we need to proclaim that Jesus is our Lord and Savior, and we need to be baptized in obedience to Scripture. And then after that, we must live our lives in a way that honors him. Paul used language often, like you need to walk in a manner worthy of your calling. And once you grasp what God has done for you, if you're in Christ Jesus, uh, then it ought to be your desire to live for him and make your life glorious for his glory, not for our own. And so these are the applications that we need to take. We watch as Jesus submits all the way from baptism to the cross, and then he's glorified in his resurrection, and that same spirit lives in those who put faith in him. Good news. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word this morning. It is good news, Lord. And we thank you for the scriptures that tell us about the baptism of Jesus and that he submitted to all these things, not because he needed to repent of his own sin because he had none, but because he was being obedient to show us what obedience looks like. He was being humble to show us what humility looks like. And so, Lord, I ask that you would help each one here If there's anyone here, Lord, that hasn't yet put faith in you, if they haven't done that first step to repent and believe, by your Holy Spirit, Lord, and through your word, I beg of you, Lord, to do that work in their heart, to draw them to yourself. And Lord, if those that are here that have done that and they haven't yet been baptized, Lord, I pray that you will put into their hearts to become obedient to your scripture and seek baptism. And Lord, for those who have put faith in you and have been baptized, I pray, Lord, that you would help us to live out this life in a way that honors you. We cannot do it on our own, Lord. We need the Holy Spirit's help. The same Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead is the one who gives us life and empowers us to live the life you've called us to. So Lord, we pray together we ask that we may have the full experience of all three members of the trinity god the father who planned out this salvation and elected those who would be saved lord god the son who is the savior the propitiation the expiation the scapegoat the one on whom our sins are placed and whose righteousness we receive in return for simply putting faith and repenting and believing. Help us live out a life, Lord, that honors you. In Jesus' name, amen.